0: Welcome to episode 525 with my guest, Dr. Rachel Taylor. I'm Paul Gilmartin. this is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental... professional? Yeah, the professionals drop the R from everything that they say. This is not meant to be a substitute. For professional mental counseling, I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. mentalpod also the social media handles you can follow us at. Uh, I want to kick things off with uh, an email that I got from Marianne. And she writes, uh, Hey there, it's Marianne. Chances are you found one of my offers or I invited you personally. Here's what I can promise you. I will only send you things that I feel will really help you out. I was so moved by this, I had to go lay down. And I don't know if I have ever held a piece of paper close to my heart before uh, while I took a nap. But um, I soaked this paper with tears of gratitude. I'm just so touched that somebody who doesn't even know me would invite me to open future emails from them. Continuing, I'm a real person with a real passion for giving. People hope about changing their lives like I did. Keep your eyes open for good stuff, and good stuff is in capital letters. And, and I think it always should be. Um, and I think bad stuff should be in the smallest font that you can find. Uh, she says it will be coming your way soon. See you then, Marianne. So deeply touched. I can't wait to click on whatever it is that you send me, Marianne. Uh, one of our sponsors for today, as always, is BetterHelp.com online counseling. That's Better H-E-L-P. dot com. If you are interested in trying out online therapy, which I'm a huge fan of, as I like to say, there's nothing like cl- crying in your recliner, not not having to get in the car to cry, uh, I, I really re- recommend checking it out. And so if you're interested, go to betterhelp.com slash mental, make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast. And then... Uh, You'll fill out a questionnaire. If they have a counselor that they feel is a good fit for you, they'll match you up with one, and then you can uh, try a free week of counseling to see if it's your thing. And, um, you know, if you don't feel that the counselor is a good fit, they'll they'll pair you up with another one. Um, and you need to be over 18. All right, one more thing before we get to uh, the interview with Dr. Taylor. Uh, and for those of you that are new to the podcast, the podcast is kind of two parts. One is an interview with a guest in the middle of the show, and then at the front end and the back end of the podcast are me reading uh, things that either have been sent to me or uh, anonymous uh, confessions filled out by listeners on a variety of topics. And this one is from the Awfulsome Moments survey, and this was filled out by they call themselves deeply anxious oh fuck i I forgot i used shorthand uh for this and i thought i would know what my shorthand meant but their name is something that has to do with deeply anxious um and this is this is actually from the psych ward experiences but i thought this qualified as an awful moment so uh, i'm just gonna read it uh the first day and the inpatient was the worst when i first went to the hospital i had to undress to my underwear in the parentheses no bra in front of two female security guards uh, for a quote skin check to see if i had any injuries i suppose this could be to check for evidence of self-harm but it sounded more as a protective measure of the hospital against being sued for injuries later when i saw the psychiatrist to be evaluated a different security guard escorted me to the room and sat in the room with a psychiatrist sitting behind a desk and computer. While I tried not to cry as the psychiatrist in a sympathetic but still clinical voice asked me about suicidal ideation, etc. I felt very exposed having to admit to suicidal thoughts. I usually can sidestep these, but I was so upset there was no way I could. And to talk about my personal history and how bad my depression had gotten. The kicker was when, in the middle of all this, the security guard fell asleep and started to quietly snore. I am here with Rachel Taylor who's a physician and uh our paths crossed a couple of weeks ago and you were so open and honest about your life I was like wow she would be a great guest and you uh you agreed your mistake boy will you come to regret this uh, I
1: doubt it but thank you <laughs> Yeah you know, you're based on
0: the uh the east coast and how long have you been a practicing uh physician
1: I finished medical school in two thousand eleven okay. and I um I did a couple years of surgery training, decided to be switched to family medicine and then did two years of emergency medicine with Native Americans. And oh. now I do primary care. Just it was there's a lot of travel and so a big part that. of my story actually is the Native Americans. I know you're very I was just gonna already.
0: say, uh, <laughs> let's let's get to that right after we, we talk about your upbringing i'd love to i'd love to start there if you're uh cool with it. i don't know why you wouldn't be cool with it. i'd prefer sure. not to t- i want to do the podcast but I would prefer not to talk about anything from my childhood
1: <laughs> no, no no i'm totally fine um I wasn't sure if you wanted me to put into context remembering my sexual abuse trauma as recently as I did, or if you want me to tell you that it happened, like start with that having happened, because I think a big part of my story is having not known that happened until more recently.
0: Well, I think that's so. such an important part of the story because I I also, until I was, you know, very middle-aged, did, did not realize really up until about uh, 10 years ago that what happened to me was sexual abuse and the perpetrator was my mom. And it was very kind of hidden in caring for the child's body and uh yeah. yeah uh well let's talk about what was what was the emotional uh kind of uh, give me some snapshots of
1: let's do, yeah let's do this okay so i grew up in a very strongly um mormon family <laughs> and so you grew up um, in utah uh so part of my childhood was in a small town in northern utah my parents got divorced when i was very young i was two youngest of four kids at that time um my dad is also a physician uh he was in training when they had me and um and then got divorced shortly thereafter um after me Uh, we moved to northern utah when i was about two until the age of 11 and at which time my mom did this thing that i call surprise husband um, where she had met someone on the earliest of dating sites and LDS Singles Mormon, a Mormon dating site. Um, and I had, I think I was at my dad's um, for the week, and I got home, and my mom's like, I'm married, we're moving to California. So then I grew up wow. in Southern California mm-hmm. from the age of 11 to 16. Um, do you, do you remember?
0: I, hold on one second. Do you remember what you felt or thought when she was? I'm married.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, so so here's the, I mean, we've already kind of opened this can of saying we both had a sexual trauma that we didn't remember until we were in middle age, right? right. So so I think one of the great, <laughs> this sounds crazy, but one of the, the better things about the sexual trauma is, you know, you kind of get um, unknowingly stuck in that kind of maturity of age, right? Mm-hmm which is not great in some ways. Like I wish I had known that, that about it before, you know, but, um, but I think the the great thing was that I was very kind of for my whole life, very open. I very, very much, very childlike in those, in those positive characteristics too, very willing to give people a chance, very seeing the good in people um, in some ways, trusting people. I should definitely should not have trusted in my life. Um, but you know, so when we were moving to California, I was excited. I thought, this is funny, my job, my goal was, so first of all, I've never wanted to be anything but a doctor um, or anything. I've always wanted to be a doctor, at least, I guess I should say. But my, I was so excited. So I'm like, we're moving to Southern California. I could be an actress. And my, I said, I'm going to be an actress, but for backup, I'm going to become a doctor, is what I told my, <laughs> my parents. So, like, just in case the accessing doesn't work out, I'll yeah. become a
0: doctor. And, and why wouldn't fall
1: it? back on? Why wouldn't it work <laughs> out? Everybody
0: that comes here has their dreams encouraged and realized. And there's yeah, no, right. no bitterness, sadness, or darkness.
1: Right, right. We're all stars. Mm-hmm. So um so I was actually very excited. Um, you know, I so We're my mom California. married in so I grew up in, uh, well, okay, so I say I grew up in Southern California from 11 to 16. And I think, I mean, that was not a long time. I skipped two grades, um, sixth and twelfth. So those were years I should have been still in California, if that makes sense. Um, right. But I was, the, the home situation was very volatile. Um, I hate to to say, you know, like my stepdad was awful because I think, we all come to life you know come come to the table with our own traumas yeah so it's something so that's I, dis-
0: discussed a lot here and and i um you know by prefacing that i think we all understand uh that you're you're not throwing him under the bus that there were positive qualities there and this isn't a total summation of him as a human being but these are the things that happened
1: Right. Absolutely. Yes. So, so it was um, a very kind of volatile home. I remember, um, you know, just like you'd imagine some repressed religious home where, where no one talked about the bad things and, um, and it was, everything pretended everything was fine until it wasn't. And then it just was an explosion and it was terrifying. And, and I remember and yelling at my mom and me as the youngest standing up and be like, don't talk to my mom that way and just kind of having to defend my mom and and you know wondering why she wasn't defending us. You know, in hindsight, she didn't really have that capability, but um just kind of scary. You know, there was one one of a where we were taken over to our neighbor's house by my mom when we first moved out there with a the man none of us really knew that well, including her. Um and And left there at our the the top person, like a pastor in the Mormon church is called the bishop, so left at our bishop's house um while we waited for him to calm down and and not knowing like what you know what's happening and then and then my mom picks us up and take us back, and no one talks about it. There's no discussion about what happened, right, and I just you know I remember my life kind of spent chronic overachieving um, because I, f- I think with that many kids, so he had th- he has three kids. So then add that and my half brother that was born from my my dad's new marriage. So there were eight of us. So for me to get attention, you know, just this constant kind of, excuse me, <clears throat> overachieving, you know, the first person in my class to be varsity lettered in high school and, um, you know, being in the, the audition show choir and being the best Mormon girl I could possibly be. And, you know, just this kind of constant, um what can I achieve so that I'll get some attention in this family?
0: What it you, felt like. What do you remember uh, it feeling like in your body back then? Do you remember feeling tense? Do you remember having stomach aches or dread or fear? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So So a lot of what I did was I remember quite a few things. So I was not very good at sleeping. Um, I can't remember ever sleeping well. I, I have a pulled muscle in my right back. I remember it was an especially stressful day and I was getting ready to run on a track meet. And um, as the, the, the gun went off, you know, to go, I, I went to run and it pulled, but I don't like in hindsight that the, the muscle strain, you know, the different pains I would, I would break down just crying over things that no, um, that, that my friends would be like, why is she crying? You know, why is she crying? Did you stop the race when I was running?
0: Yeah. Did you stop the race because of your back?
1: No, no, no. I kept going. I think that tells a
0: lot. That tells a lot.
1: Right, right. So I, I think, um, I think just this chronic stress, this chronic kind of um, not sleeping would really culminate for me in crying a lot at times where I finally felt safe. And it was usually um, at night in my room alone, or, um, you know, with one of my best friends or something. And, and actually, interestingly enough, if, if you don't know this, there's a a paper called the science of tears that showed that tears released, you know, during sadness releases a lot of stress hormones. So, so essentially my own body was taking care of all the stress by crying. And, um, you know, it was, it just felt very tense. It felt very, um, very defensive, kind of always with my guard up kind of always on edge, um, this is a funny story. I guess I asked my mom to take me to a therapist and she took me to one when I was, I think I was 12, asked her to, and they made me draw pictures or something. And I was like, that was really stupid mom. That was like for babies, (laughs) I'm not going back again. So, you know, if that speaks to my house, like it was so busy that the 12 year old has to ask for her own therapy, you know? So, so, um, I, yeah, I think, I think that was, a time when I just really longed, I think for connection. And I, when I look back, I see myself kind of reaching for friendships that were not great, but I would cling to anyone that would give me the chance of being their friend because I felt just so alone, you know, and so scared. Um, as I made friends later, I was so grateful. Like I wouldn't have gone through all of that. Isn't
0: that, that the best feeling when you when you mm-hmm. do finally meet your people, no matter yeah. how late in life it is, it's such a good feeling. And you look back sometimes at your previous friendships and you're like, wow, I was eating crumbs and thought it was a banquet.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, this is really funny. About four to five months ago, one of my friends, quote unquote friends from mm-hmm. seventh grade sent me this long message on Facebook. She found me saying, I'm so sorry, the type of friend I was and things like that. So it's interesting, you know, how that really comes back around. Um, But I mean, I'm not, I'm not a perfect friend either. You know, I'm not
0: always, but. I think one of the most important things in friendship is just a willingness to own your own shit. Cause you're, you're both going to disappoint each other. You're both gonna, uh, you know, have moments when you're a human being or, you know, even lose your temper and say something really shitty, but how you clean it up to me is what determines, do I want to hang in for this friendship?
1: Yeah. Oh my God. Absolutely. I think, I think pretending, and and this is a conversation I had with my 13 year old the other day. I said, pretending like you're never going to get mad at your friends, your spouse, your boyfriend or whatever you have, you know, that is a way of, of kind of, I guess, to me, a way I have used to shame myself in the past. Like when I get angry, get so mad at myself, like what you were not even lady, like you're such an awful person, you know, this dialogue in my head about how can you get mad at these people that love you and whatever. And, and honestly, you know, I think, I think we have a misunderstanding about how, how friendships and relationships go. It's, it's the aftermath of the fight, not the fight that right. that really determines you know your your capabilities as a friend and and to receive friendship too i think
0: so what would if you could get in a time machine and go back to yourself at any age and have adult you talk to young you uh when would it be and and what if anything would you say or do i know that's oh, a big wow. question
1: that's a, that is a huge question um I almost wonder, you know. I almost wonder if I would go back and say, "Hey, listen, you know how you're responding. This is because of a sexual assault. You were sexually assaulted when you were young, and you don't remember, but your body does, and that's why this is so so difficult for you." Um, But I don't know. I mean, it's a it's a hard it's a hard thing to do, right? Because if I were to do that, what experience would I have missed in my life? you know, where I think that sexual assault really brought on a lot of just searching and determination for for truth in my life and, it, and kind of will to survive. And maybe not, maybe it would have been nice to not be in survival mode my whole life. Right. But
0: um, mostly, I mean, for temporary comfort, you know.
1: Oh, right. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I would go back and just say, listen, it's going to get better. Keep on keeping on. And I think at that time in my life, if the sex state talking about the sexual is off the table, I would really tell myself, hone your intuition, forget everyone else and start meditating, start listening to yourselves, start, you know, all of this, because that has been so, so pivotal in my life now for my healing and health is, is my own intuition. So
0: I love it. So what's the next chapter for you after that?
1: Okay. So then I left high school when I was 16. I did early college and moved to Utah where my dad still was um, and went to college from 16 to 20. And then again, you know, the chronic overachieving did a lot of, um, you know, honors in microbiology and pre-med and a minor in chemistry and just such a nerd. How did you do in
0: organic chemistry?
1: Oh my God. I took, (laughs) I actually liked organic chemistry. I know. I know. I loved building little models and stuff like that. I'm a very, um, hands-on type person and very spatially oriented. I always,
0: I always thought I was smart. And then I took organic chemistry and I was like, wow, I could never grasp it. Could never grasp it. But you, it it clicked with you.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, so here's probably the difference between us, though. I love um being spatial, like models and things like that. Math, though, mm, like I need, I need a spatial model to look at for me. So, so math was not easy for me. Can't organic chemistry and all of that biochemistry was super interesting. I love that. I. It's, it was kind up. of
0: for me, it felt like tetris times ten, like tetris in three dimensions, and then yeah. they're like, oh, and there's also all these exceptions to the rule. The thing I loved about inorganic chemistry was there was no exceptions
1: right, that's very true. I think one of the reasons I loved organic chemistry was because I took both parts one and two during this intensive summer course where you had four hours of lecture a day um and I didn't have any other classes to worry about. And I got really close to two friends uh, that we would study together, you know, that whole, the whole thing. So that whole summer. So I think that, I think in some ways it, it reminds me of those great friendships and maybe I've blocked uh, some of how hard it was. <laughs>
0: so. What were your escapes other than achieving or was that it? Was that your kind of soul obsession
1: Okay, so here's my thing and a lot of people saw it as like um boy crazy and boy crazy was what they were telling me. I wouldn't necessarily like run around having like one night stands or anything like that. I was I guess relatively kind of innocent. I didn't I didn't really drink, um I got drunk one time when I was fifteen and my mom was
0: You're crazy. a terrible um, person.
1: I know. Unbelievable, right? <laughs> um and then, and then in co- like once I went to college, I I was never drink, legal legal drinking age in college, so um, I drank here occasionally. But here's what happened: I went to college in Utah, where men were looking to marry young women, Mormon women, right? So when I was 13 in California, I remember sitting in a church sermon or whatever you want to call it, um, and they talked about. Um, I loved my friend so much that I wanted to share the Mormon church with him, you know, like, like my friend was amazing, but he would have been better with being Mormon. And I remember at 13 years old, I was like, that's not, that's not okay. Yeah. If, if this God person, whoever loves everyone, why, why don't I, uh, why does why does he care what religion you are? Right. You know, like it's anyway,
0: that's a pretty awesome thought for a, for a kid at that age.
1: Right. I wish at that age, I would have gone back and said, keep on that line, like keep on that learning how to love and that kind of thing. Um, but anyway, so I had, I wasn't Mormon, um, or practicing when I moved to Utah, um, for college and then met a couple of guys who I ended up getting really close with. One of them really liked me was almost 10 years older than me. Um, and you know, we dated for a year or so. And my family was like, we really love him. You should get married. And me wanting to people, please me wanting to be accepted by my own family um, was like, okay, I guess so. I guess this is what I do, you know? And so at 19, as a teenager, I got married the first time. (laughs) And so needless to say about, I'd say six months to a year afterwards. And I Feel terrible about this I mean I wish I'd had the insight beforehand I was like what did I do I don't believe in this church I don't want to be I was applying to medical school at the time and and this has this man knew that and was supportive until we got married then he decided I don't want you to go to medical school um actually I want you to be like why don't you just get a master's or something and I'm like excuse me you know like this is my only dream, and and so you know between that and kind of waking up one day and being like, what the fuck did I do? Excuse my language. Um, I just that was that was that, and then you know, so we got divorced, and at the time again, difficulty sleeping. My big escapes. I actually worked night shift as a nurse assistant while I'd take like twenty credits a semester, and I'd sleep like pretty rarely like I you know whenever I could in between tests and stuff like that um in between classes so um yeah I guess more like probably work and studying were all my escapes like I would just load myself up with tasks um and my family kind of I remember my dad saying who's gonna take care of you now you know these are the kind of messages I got who's gonna take care of you and this isn't a good time. I remember that. This isn't a good time for you to be getting divorced. Like for him. It was inconvenient for my dad.
0: Oh, he was saying for him.
1: For him. This is not a good time for him.
0: Wow. That says a lot. <laughs> that says a tremendous, tremendous amount. Oh
1: my God. So just, so just a lot of, you know, kind of disappointing my family, my family kind of this feeling of them kind of stepping away or distancing themselves because I wasn't kind of fitting in that mold that they wanted me to be in and, and me keeping trying to fit into the mold and then just waking up every time and being like, I can't do this. I can't compromise myself to fit what my family or whatever social circle wants me to be. Yeah.
0: It's, it's such A difficult thing that so many people never do detaching, you know, even with love from from people that are not healthy for you or or distancing yourself. It's there's so much guilt involved and there's usually such a circle of other family members who reinforce that message that you're a bad person for doing this. Why don't you just do it? And I don't know if subconsciously in their mind, they don't want to face their own dislike of the system that they are just acquiescing to. But it's, it's really hard. I, I, it's one of the most common uh, emails I get from listeners is they'll just talk about, I, I don't know what to do with my, with my family. They, you know, I'm afraid to come out to them or I'm afraid to do what I really want to do. And it's, it, it's fucking hard. It's fucking hard.
1: It, you feel so free that actually didn't come until I was about thirty um me doing that, but um
0: and at what yeah, point had I, you had you kind of uh severed the at least uh, emotional tie that you had to them in wanting their approval?
1: It actually wasn't until probably three to four years ago in my early thirties that I was like. It, it wasn't until the magical time I spent with um, not only the native Americans, but some of the, um, some of the indigenous people that embraced their indigenous, like tr- traditional healing. And I, and we could definitely.
0: Let's talk about that.
1: You want to talk about yeah. it? Down? You want yeah. to jump forward? There's a lot yeah. though in between. Okay. We can, we can jump.
0: Well, let's just then let's uh, as they say, put a pin in it and make sure we don't, Uh, forget to go there because I am interested in hearing about your uh, experiences. Oh, oh, that
1: is the highlight of the story, but um, we could get through. (laughs) We could get through some of this. Um, I'll just, you know, briefly say, you know, it kind of. It kind of was a lot of chaos. I think I was. I was looking, searching right in your 20s. You're talking about. Right. Yes. After this divorce, you know, I was so buried in my work and, um, and trying to get, become a doctor and, um, you know, looking for things and then, you know, became pregnant about a year later, uh, got married to this person because my family wanted me to, even though I was vehemently opposed until I was like, fine. And then this, and then, and then the stakes become higher, right? This becomes someone who's throwing things at me, who's screaming names at me, who's angry at me because I'm studying, He's like, you think you're so fucking smart? You know, you stupid, like, you bitch, you think you, you're so much better than me. Like talk about someone else's insecurity. And, you know, I just had my daughter and I was like, that's enough. I can't do this. I wasn't sleeping at the time. I was having difficulty. I was irritable, you know, all of this. And guess what happened? I got misdiagnosed as bipolar. No one was asking me, or do you feel safe at home? Uh, what's going on at home? No, it was this, um, you know, and in, in the doctors as a doctor, I can say we try our best. But it was a huge miss. You know, there was no asking about domestic assault about, are you able to sleep? Do you feel safe at home to sleep? You know, and this is in my first year of medical school. And now I'm finding random people to watch my daughter and, you know, feeling like I'm the problem, right? This, this, wow. I, I can't sleep. I'm stressed out. I mean, yeah. Like welcome to being a medical student and a new parent <laughs> and an abusive relationship. Like, you know, like no one normalized that for me. And I wish at the time someone had, someone had been like, look, yeah, we know why you're not sleeping. You got this asshole yelling at you. You have a baby crying and you're in medical school. Like, this is nuts. You know, to, who do you think you are? Basically, a <laughs> superwoman, you know?
0: Do you ever look at uh, the the fact that your mom chose someone like that and then you did the same thing and and wonder, was that a subconscious thing? Was that the type of man that I was just familiar with? What? What what do you ask yourself when you look at that? And please don't interpret this as as me victim blaming. No, 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 okay. no,
1: no, because I agree with you, Paul. I think I think too few times we look at our patterns and who we choose. Um, because I was assaulted by another boyfriend later, um, who I lived with. So, uh, and then you know someone. <laughs> And then just a lot of these very chaotic relationships, um, and over time, you know, I, I blamed myself for a long time. You know, I was misdiagnosed as bipolar for almost ten years. In that time, um, I had used alcohol to cope uh, with increasing stressors. I was a surgical resident initially. Um, I missed my daughter. I was she was with her dad. Um, because I was blamed. I, you know, I was. She wasn't like pride from my hands. I thought I was this crappy, like bipolar mom who can't handle a baby. You know, I never did anything wrong. There was, you know, I there was no abuse. There's, you know, of, did, of the child.
0: Did you have visitation <laughs> rights?
1: Yeah, no, yeah, okay. it was agreed upon okay. that he would have her, there was no reason for me to not have full custody of her, except for when you're in medical school, you do 30 hour shifts at the hospital. I lived on $16,000, one $6,000 a year. So I wasn't paying a full-time nanny to watch my daughter, you know, when I'm in the hospital for 30 hours. And so he, my ex, he, uh, he had like the, some disabled vet stuff. So he had the GI Bill. He didn't have to work this whole time, um, lived on his disability, which is great. I'm, That's great, you know, but it just was so hard. Thinking I'm bipolar, getting medicated, going to, you know, going to school and, these crazy hours where you're up at night and, um, you know, going to therapy, trying to figure out what's wrong with me. Why am I like, why am I so awful? Why am I so, why are the medications not working? Why can't I focus? You know, (laughs) just a whole bunch of, you know, asking what's wrong with me. And, and, and then again, being in these kind of chaotic relationships with men and the whole time just thinking, what the fuck is wrong with me? Like, it seems like everyone else can kind of do this stuff. You know what I mean? Like, it seems like everyone else kind of has it together. Um, What's wrong with me? Like, why can't I just have this like healthy, calm relationship? You know, but (laughs)
0: And the irony is that then you see patients every day who put you on a pedestal, and not saying that that you don't deserve people's admiration for being a doctor. I think it's an incredibly noble thing to do, but they look at you Thank as you. somebody that has no problems, that copes easily with life and that is never stressed out and you got it all figured out.
1: Oh yeah, oh, you should have heard um when I was on the reservation. Uh, I would hear literally these exact words, you stupid white bitch. You have no idea. You've never had a struggle. You, you, you don't even know. And, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll direct at you at in the hospital. Directly to me as their ER doctor, oh. you stupid fucking white bitch. I'm going to fucking punch you in the face. You have no idea. Just screaming at me, you know? And, and first of all, I do have to say, the greater the knowledge I get of the uh, injustice is done to the Native Americans, like, I get it. Um, as you might know already, PTSD creates a change in our DNA called methylation. So any PTSD, so, like, if you see something terrible, that creates that change in, in your DNA. And then it now has been shown by science it can be passed down uh, for up to seven generations. So So the Native Americans are still... Uh, And apply to whatever, whoever you want to, but people are still um, living in that methylation, that change in DNA from generational trauma. So for her to extra hate me, uh, I got it. I was like, I get it. This is literally in your DNA to hate me right now. And I get that. Like, and you can see it. And so I didn't really take it personally. Does that make sense? Yeah. But I did sit down with them and I'd say, listen, I've been there. I have been assaulted I have been whatever I've been, you know, you name it. I have used alcohol to cope. I get that. I needed help too. I couldn't figure out what the problem was and I needed help. And I've been there and I'm here to help you. Did and that, a lot of times the walls would come down and kind of, Oh, wow.
0: yeah. Go
1: ahead.
0: Finish your thought. And then give me an example of if you can remember one.
1: Um. So Oh, I was going to say that there was a sign in front of the hospital in one of the reservations I went to still that said, kill the white man when I started working there. So, and I wasn't really allowed to be out on the reservation at night or anything like that. Like I had to.
0: For your own safety.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so an example of, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what an example of you want me to give you.
0: Of, of the, their walls coming down.
1: Oh, a lot of what will happen is usually there's drugs or alcohol involved. So let's just say this is not like a baseline, you know, coming mm-hmm. in with just hating me. Um, but
0: and and untreated, as you know, untreated alcoholism and drug addiction warps uh, the person suffering fr- from it. It warps their perspective in a way that uh, to say it's profound, it might even be an understatement.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there was one patient, I remember. Uh, he came in, um, just, you know, we have in the in the ER or in any hospital setting, you have like frequent flyers, you have people that are there all the time. I have frequent flyers, not a very nice name for them. But, um, you know, they're there all the time and almost always for the same reason and almost always involves drinking too much or withdrawals or drugs or you know something like that um i think that the western medicine system gets it wrong and seeing that this is a moral failure on this person's part which i think is ridiculous Super fucked. right yeah so fucked. that is a great way to put it um and it was you know just as an aside it's a very very difficult to live in a to, to work in a culture that sees you know alcohol or even some mental health issues as like a moral failure and have those issues. Like I didn't tell anyone I was bipolar, quote unquote bipolar at the time. Um, so anyway, I see this patient and he comes in and comes in and everyone's like, Oh, he's always here, you know, whatever. So I'm like, you know what, this time I'm going to, I'm going to take a breath. I'm going to tap into my own problems, my own issues, how I wish what I wish would have happened. Um, when I, you know, had these problems and, uh, I go to him and I'm like, listen, I know that you are so ashamed and, you know, so tired of, of drinking over and over, you know, and not knowing why you can't stop. Um, and I explained to him the DNA, the trauma in the DNA and how, uh, that, that could potentially be, be an issue. And, um, told him about you know what I struggled with alcohol here's what I did and it's not easy uh you have to face the underlying problem but you can do it too and this doesn't mean you're a bad person or you know you're a failure because I think a lot of defensiveness and anger comes from that sadness or that place of shame or guilt or something like that and and he you know ended up actually like breaking down crying probably releasing those stress tears and then saying you know thank you like I was seen as a human being today and I think that's you know the 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 benefit of having been through so much bullshit in my life is really to say yep I have been here I have 100% been here I'll tell you my story if you tell me yours and we can come together as a team
0: it's, it's such a powerful thing when that pile of bullshit gets turned into gold that you can spend in connecting to another person. It's, th- that's what led me to believe that there is some benevolent force in the universe that I can't explain. I don't know how it works, but I feel it in those moments. I feel it. And that yeah. must be what other people call, uh, God. Uh, I'm sometimes uncomfortable using that word because it has, as you know, kind of been uh
1: sometimes used in the in a way that is more harmful to another human yes, being. Yeah.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. I agree. Uh-huh.
1: But- I can explain some of it actually, Paul. There yeah. are a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of science behind intuition and um uh the Heart Math Institute just published a whole book on the science of the heart and I was just reading it because I have nothing Cooler to do on a Friday night than to read scientific studies. But um, yeah, your electromagnetic field of one person can coordinate with another person's electromagnetic fields uh, of their heart. Uh, we read that on EKGs. Um, that's what the electromagnetic field, you know, the squiggly EKGs. right. You're right. That uh, actually can coordinate also with someone else's EEGs, so their brainwaves. Um, there are now studies proving it. I actually, this was some of my big I told you I just spoke at the Physician Burnout Symposium was about the different ways that intuition works um, and the different ways that we, there's a concept called emotional contagion. Have you ever heard of that?
0: I don't think so. No.
1: So emotional contagion is something coined, I think in the seventies by a psychologist where it's basically like someone's having a shitty day, your boss or whatever they come in. And for whatever reason, the whole office is in a bad mood, right? They coined that phrase and since then there's been a lot of work on it. So, so the person, and I am blanking on her name, but um, I actually, all of these studies, by the way, are in the book I wrote. So if you were more interested, they're all cited in there. Uh, And and um, Mention the
0: name of your book again.
1: It's called Medication Detox, How to Live Your Best Health. And um, this book is about like intuition and like free ways to be healthy because my big my, the thing, my passion, the thing that drives me in medicine is serving underserved populations. I I always told people if there wasn't student loans, I would literally just do medical missions only, um, you know, but I am, you know, I, I'm more than happy to if organizations with underserved populations that, that, you know, can't pay for this kind of thing, want help, I am more than willing to volunteer my time because I think it's so important that people know how very healthy we can be with literally spending no money if we just know what to do with our bodies um, and this is not recipes or supplements. this is talking about our electromagnetic fields and how they interact and and how um, one person's brain was coordinate with another person's heart uh, just within eighteen inches of them and the Heart Math Institute has found something called coherence uh, so they measure heart rate variability Um, and what that can show is if you uh, if you amplify it it's uh, it shows if you're in like an angry mood versus like a loving coherent kind mood it can show a difference in your heart electromagnetic field, and um, then so if we can tell from our EKG what kind of mood we're in right and then within 18 inches of someone, you can use your, the, your EKG, your heart electric, electromagnetic field can coordinate with their brain electromagnetic fields. Um, and actually, she, like, they will coordinate together. And some, in some ways, I think it's part of the, the unspoken kind of way that your mood changes. Now, there's also the mirror neuron system. Uh, women use that a lot to pick up how people are doing emotionally by looking at their faces. We use that a ton. Women, men do briefly, but then they go into like problem solving mode, which is a different part of your brain. Um, And actually mirror neurons, not only, so, um, so one of the studies they used was in monkeys where they looked at their brain uh, while one monkey was observing the other the other monkey would like get a banana, peel it and eat it or whatever, or get a banana and throw it away or whatever they do. Right. The other monkey is staying still, but watching this monkey do it, the same exact neurons are lighting up. So, so that's what a mirror neuron is. I'm mirroring what you're doing, which is another way we pick up emotions too.
0: And and probably the reason why advertising works
1: Oh my God. That's why they show babies on advertising. I'm sure. Same with facial mimicry, but um, the incredible thing in this, in the monkey studies is that they, they watched the monkey who was observing know what the other monkey was going to do with the banana before he did it based on the mirror neurons. Basically he could tell the other monkeys intention and not the actual movement. So before the other monkey threw the banana away, the observing monkey already knew he was going to do that. And this is all like, there's so much science of intuition. It's nuts. Like I, it's just so nuts to me that we don't spread the word on all of this because these are all things that can kind of be part of this emotional contagion. Um, And this is a big thing I actually teach. uh, I do intuitive so as you know I work right now with the pandemic I'm still doing a lot of generic uh typical primary care but I also do a lot of I call intuitive health education where it's like here's all of the science let me help with my intuition look at you and and without without talking because I don't want I I don't want someone to tell me what they're thinking or feeling because I don't want to be biased I want to look and say okay, we're discovering some stuck beliefs here. These are these are areas that we can work. I use my own like over the years and through teachings from both the Native Americans and non-Native Americans, I've learned how to use these modalities that are scientifically proven to help other people overcome their kind of stuckness in things.
0: Wow. That's some cool it's shit. Like,
1: it's so fucking cool. Like I could talk about this forever
0: are you anti-med for people's uh metal issues
1: no 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 no.
0: okay so i just wanted to clear that up
1: (laughs) no i know you know the book is called medication detox and in hindsight i'm like "Eh, maybe maybe it, it sends the wrong message i guess what i'm trying to say with this book is we can be so healthy. And, and this was shown to me actually by the Native Americans who you would just not typically think some of them with some of their lifestyles would be healthy at all. But you find or I would find it was the the there were a few just as one example, there was one medicine man from the reservation who hadn't seen a doctor in like 3040 years and came in with some chest pains. And we did um, EKGs, like all the labs, everything, all of that. And I literally have never seen more beautiful labs in my life. Perfect, perfect labs, right? Um, just per- super healthy, like everything was fine. Right? And, and it was kind of amazing. This man lived, you know, his life with intention with an appreciation for the earth with presence with Being there, finding his own peace, going slowly, like that kind of thing, being intentional about who he surrounds himself with and, you know, running sweat lodge and, and doing all of those kind of really beautiful self-care and sometimes very hard and deep self work activities. And, um, you know, we, we, we talked for quite a while and, 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 you know, it just, it was kind of incredible you know we came down to figuring out together what what it was that was driving this chest pain and I think it just takes an openness on 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 both people's parts to figure that out but it is a, and it was not a physical thing you could see right mm-hmm. but there's so much research on the unseen um however when it comes to medications back to that sorry um I think the medications are a great stabilizer. I think they're a great stabilizer. If you, if you can't, it, it, it's like ER, surgery, things like that. If it's something that keeps you alive or that helps stabilize you in life while you're fixing the thing that caused the initial issue. Right. Um,
0: it's kind of a life raft rather than the boat and the island.
1: I guess so. I'm not <laughs> sure.
0: Meaning meaning it keeps you from sinking, but it's 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 not ultimately the only thing that, that you need to uh tool you need to utilize to get where you want. You know,
1: exactly. You need trauma
0: work possibly, you need yeah. to eat right, you need to have community, you need to yeah. live with purpose and intention and try to be present and et cetera, and et cetera. Think-
1: I think one of the big things we're missing is, um, is honing and really appreciating all of the unseen, uh, that exists. And that's kind of my mission is to spread that word, but I can give you, so kind of going back just a little bit. So, so here I was still thinking I was bipolar in 2016, um, which by the way, was the same year I got assaulted by one of my boyfriends and then moved out only to be in an apartment where someone, a stranger tried to walk in and attempted to sexually assault me. So it was just not a year, not my year. Um, Yeah. So uh, I don't, I mean just these repeated patterns too, that, you know, now I can look back and say, Oh, well that makes sense why I chose that, but I'm choosing not to do that anymore type of thing and fighting that chaos. Um. So in that time, when I was a family medicine resident, actually, a couple of psychiatrists had been like, I don't think you're bipolar. And it's so, I was so afraid to feel that I was like, no, I am um, keep me on all these medications. Like I was insisted on staying on the medications because I was so afraid of what my emotions would do if I wasn't on them. Um, so kept me on, kept me on. I was going, uh, I graduated and I was flying around to different reservations. I was probably on 10 ish medications a day, different medications, and some of them to treat the side effect of the other medication. And, oh, there was a lot. Um, and, uh, one, one big problem was that I had a, a low thyroid, so that was hard to control too, but, um, that's, had something that should have been discovered right after my pregnancy, but hadn't been discovered for years afterwards, which led to a lot of my depression, actually. Um, so anyway, uh, I was going to the reservations, I was seeing a therapist, I was working, I was um, taking all my meds, and um, doing quote, everything right, according to Western medicine. And then, um, you know, I'm on the reservation and that's when it hit me in 2018, I was, I was like, when I leave the shift, I'm going to go kill myself. Like, that's it. I'm done. I'm exhausted. I feel so hopeless. My daughter doesn't even care about me in my head, my story I made up, you know, everyone else would be better off without me. I'm too emotional, you know, all this stuff. And, you know, it's what you're talking about. You can't explain it. There was something in me that said, you're gonna. You need to fight for your life. Like you're not done. You're not done here. You have so much to do, right? And um, you know, I came home and just kind of devastated. And and I went to this place I frequen- frequented, um, and these girls who knew me were like, "Oh, you know, Dr. Taylor already back from you know from the reservation." I'm like, oh, for whatever reason, I was like. In my head, I'm just going to be super open with these guys. I'm like, actually, you guys, I, I'm, I'm suicidal. I'm, I needed to come home. I needed help. Um, it was frowned upon. My boss was very mean about it. Very mean. Very shaming. Kind of, what? look at what you've done. You've left your posts. These patients are without you. We might lose this contract. So wow. that's how medicine It's very common wow. for medicine. Super common in, in the medical field. So when I got home from the reservation... Um, You know, I was barely clinging to life. And it was kind of like a, I have fucking nothing to lose anymore. I'm doing everything right. Supposedly, I'm doing everything I was asked to do. And I still don't want to be alive. Like, this is terrible. But keep in mind, we see a lot of suicidal patients in the emergency room. That's the first place you go. And that's great. I think we, we need to have a safe place. And for now that's the best we have, right. Is the emergency room. So that's fine. But um, I was seeing two, three, four suicidal patients daily. And in the context of that facial mimicry and all of that, I just told you about, you could imagine why some of the suicidal thoughts may not have all been mine. Um, In hindsight, I saw that, but But I went to this. It was a cold pressed juice place, and these girls were like, "Oh, you're back early, Doctor Taylor from the reservation." I'm like, "Yeah, uh, guys, I'm like, I'm suicidal. Like, I had nothing to lose, right? I just Mm -hmm. needed someone had to have an answer for me because I was doing everything I thought I was supposed to be doing, right? There had to be more. There had to be something else, or I literally, I was literally had a plan just to kill myself. I couldn't find something else." I was ready. Uh, I was just so done. And so I, um, for whatever reason, one of the girls who usually works at a different location was there doing inventory or something. She's like, I know who can help you. This guy, George. Right. So George, uh, unbeknownst to me. So she's like, he does this, you know, indigenous like healing stuff and whatever legal, by the way, not like some crazy whatever um so I call George and it's so it's insane right so I was working with the natives I loved loved I was honored to work with them I mean they there was so much beauty there in that and in, in those in the on the reservations um and it turned out this person he and his wife were both Native Americans and lived in Phoenix and also George was a physician assistant that was trained at Yale so very smart um, who introduced me actually first to that methylation of the DNA, that mm-hmm. kind of um, that kind of uh, the, the way that we react in our bodies when trauma happens and how it's passed down. And, you know, I really think I would not have gotten that big step between cause I was pure science. Like, I don't believe you, you know, show me by study, blah, blah, blah. If he, if it hadn't been for him, being able to do that um I I don't think I would be where I'm at now in the sense of like awakening to like our electromagnetic fields and intuition and how it's a real scientifically shown thing you know um and at the time you know we were just chatted for a while and um he introduced me to all of these concepts. He's like, I think you're just really sensitive to all of this stuff, the facial mimicry and all that. He's like, I don't, I don't think you're bipolar. And I was like, really? Cause other people have been saying that too. You know, like it was weird. Like the story that I created that I had to be bipolar because something was so wrong with me, but um, they did, this was really funny. So I, I was there, we talked for a long time. I developed a beautiful relationship with them. And I think, That relationship was the beginning of the needing approval from my family, because that was the first time I felt home with people who I was not blood related to, but in a very peaceful kind of connected way. Um, That was not this chaos that I grew up in. And so um,
0: you felt safe and seen.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so George is going back to become a naturopath because he had some of the same sentiments I feel about Western medicine is that we don't treat kind of the unseen, the, the, the holistic side, you know, of things, um, and I don't I think Western medicine again has its part for sure. So I don't mean to surgery,
0: that, stuff like that, you know.
1: Yeah. Mental health. I you know, I this past year I I use an antidepressant to get through part of the pandemic. Like, you know, it's not it's not like, oh my God. I I really dislike when people are like, That's toxic or that's toxic. Like everyone calm down. Like if it works for you, great, go for it, you know? Um, so anyway. They did. I sat there and I George was like, we're going to do some something called pranic healing, which is like an energy work thing. And I crossed my arms and I looked at him and he's like, don't worry, it works even if you don't believe in it. Like he knew I was being this like obstinate asshole about it, like whatever. And then they did it. And for reasons I can't explain, I have never again felt suicidal in my life. And that was something I struggled with like a few times during residency. I was suicidal. So, and, and life wasn't like magically easier either. Like it was still the same, but I just never again thought of killing myself as an option. And that's really what set me off to looking at the science and whoa, like, holy shit. You know, I've been on medical missions and seeing these underserved populations who can't afford, you know, all the doctor's visits and um, you know, medicines and stuff like that. And I, I just, it really set me off on this, how can we be healthy without this or that supplement or this or that eating this or that, or having this kind of gym or, you know, all this stuff that is just not accessible to a lot of the a great majority of the world's population that deserve to be healthy, by the way. Um, and I just have seen more and more of this unseen electromagnetic fields. And, and the more we, kind of hone and fix our our stuck beliefs um as you might know the body remembers so so you know getting to more recent times I uh this was actually only six months ago now I had, well, about eight months ago, I dated some guy who was like two weeks long. He wasn't that great, but I was like devastated. Right. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, what the fuck is this? Like, what is this? This guy is not that great. Why am I so like just clinging like this, these abandoned, you know, and then, you know, through my meditation and all this kind of stuff. and, uh, And listening to my intuition, I kind of got this, okay, abandonment issues. Okay. And then I, you know, I looked at this book, I was working on abandonment issues. I decided for this, I was going to get a, um... oh, I'd done a bunch of brain scans, by the way, a couple of years ago, and it for a custody hearing, which never happened, by the way. But anyway, the blessing was, I got uh, um, a bunch of brain scans that showed PTSD and not bipolar disorder. And it's this big battery of testing through this place called the Amen Clinic that does a bunch of mental health. That people will fly in to to really get a better diagnosis if they feel frustrated with what's going on, or they're not they're not getting better, or whatever. So, um, so that was you know another drop in the bucket of you're not bipolar. I, we'd already decided that before I got the PTSD diagnosis, but that was a little it was a little more relieving, I guess, um, to feel I was on the right track. So. About six months ago, I was doing this abandonment issues work. And one of the exercises was visiting your inner child almost daily. And um, in meditation, every morning I get up. Okay, inner child, what do you need? And a lot of times it would be like rocking or, you know, whatever, just needing hugs or whatever, you know, whatever the inner child needed. Okay, let's do that. And then there was a few days in a row where I was meditating and I kept having these like weird sexual thoughts. And I was like, ew, like, no. And I'd like shut it down and like walk away, you know? Um, And then one day I was like, okay, you know, I guess I just have to be brave. I have to see what's going on here. And that day I took a deep breath. I like, I remember it so vividly. I took a deep breath. I... <sighs> breathe all the way out and all of a sudden I remember these pieces but of my sexual assault as a child and that's pretty typical but really what happened is that I had this searing pain shoot from my groin up through my body and I was just nauseous I wanted to vomit and I shook and started crying and it was nuts so I kind of was like, what the fuck was that? You know? (laughs) And I, I thought thought, here, I thought, Oh, I got to work on my abandonment issues, but visiting my inner child. So.
0: I just think you're bipolar.
1: Yeah. Right. It's probably just it. (laughs) Just throw some meds at that. Um, so, so actually I had already gotten this great therapist. I was working through those issues with and, um, this woman who's a psychiatrist but is an integrative psychiatrist so she does she tries to do it naturally as much as possible is also an MD though and knows how to manage the medication or whatever should I need it um so before I assumed oh my god I was sexually assaulted I was like I was you know doing my research online repressed memories blah 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 you know there's there's in some ways repressed memories, if they're being led. So there's been issues in the past where people will know that some guy they were associated with, for example, like had sexually assaulted a ton of people. And then they'll be in therapy and be like, I think he assaulted me too. Like that's a little bit different, right? Where you already heard this story about a person who you, what, I mean, I'm not saying they didn't, but being led is one of the things that is kind of like, ah, you know, a little more sketchy and repressed memories. However, we had not been discussing that at all. Um, I thought it was abandonment issues because I felt like emotionally abandoned by my parents. You know, when I was little, didn't have time for me, like that kind of thing. Um, boy, was I wrong. So I talked to both my therapist and my psychiatrist who who kind of explained, you know, the, so the amygdala is your emotional memory, right? Your amygdala stores, um, these emotions that are associated with an event, when there's a traumatic event, um, if it's just, if your, if your stress level is just heightened a little bit, like for example, with physicians, when the ER, when I see horrific things, like people who have beat their children to death, I remember that extremely vividly because my brain has upregulated my hippocampus to remember that event. Because it's stressful, but not stressful enough that my body has, is like shut it down. Right. I remember this very vividly. So, however, when you cross that threshold into things that are so stressful that you're, that you don't want to remember your, um, your hippocampus, the thing that remembers what happened, the facts, who it was, where it was, that kind of thing shuts down. So you don't remember and your amygdala, the, the emotional driver, that is the thing that keeps it going. That, that hijacks your body that my, my body had been basically guided by for 35 years, you know, 30. Yeah, no. So it was 34, 34 years or, you know, 30 years. So basically my body was in the survival mode for 34 years and I didn't know why. And, it you know, the crazy thing, this might sound crazy. I'm not happy I was raped when I was a child. No, I mean, obviously. But it makes sense, right? It's like, oh my God, like I, oh my God, that makes so much sense. And And now I can use these beautiful modalities I've learned, you know, to help heal others, to, to help heal, you know, from, from other indigenous peoples or other doctors or strong intuitives like myself, you know, to, um, heal these wounds. And I have made probably, you know, 30 years of progress in six months because I'm now I can see the thing that, that I needed to show love to now I can see where, where we need some love.
0: Uh, A a couple of questions. Um, Does your body feel different now than it did uh, before six months ago? And are you able to find peace around not getting to know more details? Like who was it? Where was I, etc, etc? Because I know for a lot of people, the fragmented memories is its own kind of torture, because we want to be able to fully know our story.
1: Yeah, you know that's a good question. You know, right now, my mom had alluded to something that I, I think I might know who it was, but the problem is uh, that I hope
0: this was at Thanksgiving.
1: That, you she hope brought, it was? that she
0: that that she brought this up.
1: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Right, right, right. No, uh, no, and and she didn't even so so. Just for context, when when I had the attempted sexual assault in two thousand sixteen. I couldn't tell my mom even the story without her like cracking a joke. I had, I was like crying and like, and then he took his pants off. I was trapped in my apartment. She's like, Oh, did you say I've seen better? And, and that's just, that's her level of being able to talk about these things. So, yeah. so we hadn't really had a great discussion. There was some tiny thing she said that I'm like, maybe it was this guy, but maybe not, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I thought about it. What would I do if I knew for sure it was him? I mean, absolutely. I would say, Hey, like this guy might be doing this to other kids. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't know where he is. I've tried to find him on Facebook to see, you know, I don't know. And again, I don't, I don't know who he is. And then I think about the attempted sexual assault in 2016, they wanted me to come testify in court and all this stuff. And, you know, I think that giving all of that time and attention to this person, if I, again, if I could prove it and I knew it was him, let's make sure he's not doing this to other children. Right. But I honestly do not think spending all this time and effort trying to figure out who it was for sure is going to a help me remember because you, you can't force a conscious memory it's not going to help sitting and thinking about it and B it's taken away from all of this time and energy and effort that I could be using, honing my own healing, my own, you know, improvement, uh, you know, my growth in life, my abilities to help others. Like think of how many people I can walk around helping, whether as a doctor or as a friend or as a random person, you know, that, I can say, look, I've been there and let's heal together. Let's, you know, let's work through this together. I mean, how beautiful when you take, I, I don't know if people know that PTSD, like post-traumatic stress disorder is not the only option. There's post-traumatic growth as well is also a scientifically proven thing where- the
0: Plasticity in the brain to be able to heal and rewire yeah, where the memories come from or-
1: So that's part of it. But the big thing, the growth is saying- yeah, this shitty thing happens to me, but I can't do anything about it except for use my experience to help another person. And that's where the growth comes in, is where we're using that to bring people together, to help heal others, to help find a way to say, yeah, I've been through that, but but let me help you with that too. Let's take take my hand. We're going to do this together.
0: And And I think it's one of the most powerful things in the, in the world. I had no idea it existed when I couldn't stop drinking, uh, you know, 17, 18 years ago. And until I experienced community and people sharing stories and helping each other and saying, I don't know how to do this and breaking down and crying. I, I didn't know that that was not the end of my life. That was the beginning of my life. You know, the life I wanted to, to experience, you Right. Know?
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, half of the half of the battle is being open to a new experience that that the thing that that you need for your growth and healing is coming to you and you just need to be open and, and present and notice it. And maybe that's why, again, this is not perfect. Okay. Like, you know, when I was dating someone, my boyfriend, and I just broke up. So but it's, again like on a very peaceful a different level does that make Mm -hmm. sense a different kind of peaceful oh I get it it's not a oh I'm being abandoned you know it's like okay I see the lessons here and I appreciate that relationship and now I'm ready to go on to whatever's next but um you know a lot of times I I think I'm mad at a person or a thing or my job is burning me out or whatever and then a lot of times you know I would we would I would be getting in an argument with him and just the end of the argument be crying like why would someone rape a child and that was what I was mad at you know so it's that openness to both feel the feelings to cry the tears to to be present with it and to be vulnerable with the other people instead of thinking you're mad at him for not calling an hour ago or what you know whatever you think you're mad at it's really usually some bullshit from your past
0: yeah (laughs) there's a saying in recovery if it's hysterical it's historical Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Is there anything else uh, you'd like to share before we wrap up?
1: Yeah, I think um, I, I just really want to emphasize how important it is. People know the power of kind of their intuition for both. It's not just mental health. So when your heart is beating this more coherent pattern, your body's able to better heal. So blood is flowing better, wounds are healing, things like that, and, and really not to underestimate the power of, um, you know, stuck traumas uh, with your physical health. It's very important.
0: And I, and I love too, that you've been able to highlight the relationship uh, between science and spirituality, which people often think of as two vastly different things. And I think they are one in the same.
1: Oh, agreed. Agreed. Yeah. If you have any questions, please reach out to me. I'm more than happy That's... to explain it. I'm such a nerd about it. I read, obviously, scientific studies about it on my Friday nights. So,
0: and well, Rachel, uh, give us the name of your book one more time and we'll put a link to it in the show notes.
1: Okay. It's called Medication Detox How to Live Your Best Health. And you can reach me on racheltaylormd.com. And I was very serious when I said any underserved population organizations who just need this kind of information to be accessible to people that don't have very much accessibility to healthcare, let me know. I mean, I'm happy to volunteer my time.
0: Well, I I, I appreciate what you do and being such an advocate and sharing your story. And I, I know the listeners do as well. So thank you.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Really enjoyed talking to her. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis? It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself not your kind. And about his impulsive self-harm, he writes, I need to feel something, but if it doesn't leave a mark, I'm not doing it right. About his codependency, I will pull you down to the crushing depths where where I have always lived and you will have to leave to survive. Then I will return to the surface and just pop my head above the water enough to attract another to pull down with me. That sounds that sounds mischievous. Thank you for that. Uh, this is the same survey filled out by Cactus4000. Uh And they write about their clinical depression, a happiness vacuum, taking away the good and leaving you with all the dust. Oh, that is such a good one. About their anorexia, a wispy voice trained to pick you apart. About their OCD, sort of like not playing with a pet when you're tired. You feel bad about not doing it, so you play with them. The pet ends up still wanting to play, and you're even more exhausted. Thank you for those. This is from the love survey filled out by Shannon. She writes, I love when my dog jumps up in my lap and presses her head down on my shoulder for a hug. I love the feeling of reading a book and having the pages and words disappear so there is only the metal movie of the story playing in my head. I love the way my husband supports me through the ups and downs of living with bipolar disorder. He is always patient and kind with me and has more than once been my reason to get the help I needed to keep going. I love the moment between sleep and wakefulness when you are just starting or f- just finishing a dream but can still feel your body relaxing. Oh, that is a great one. I love bundling up under blankets in cold weather and feeling the coziness. I love when you when you briefly half wake up from a from a a good dream or an unfinished dream and you're able to fall back asleep and uh and recapture it, get right back, get right back in place. This is from the Love Survey filled out by Dufresne, Party of Two. For those of you that aren't familiar with that, that's uh, a bit that Mitch Hedberg did, the late comedian Mitch Hedberg. Probably one of my favorite bits that that he did. Um, And they write uh, their loves. A good night of rest. Not just sleep, but a restful night where you wake up and you actually feel ready to take on the day. The little rubbery toe beans out of my cat. The peace and solitude that only sitting in your car in an empty parking lot can bring. Oh, that is such a good one. Uh, A difficult but healing therapy appointment. One where I struggle through every sentence but walk away feeling like an absolute badass. King crab legs, Old Bay, butter, and permission to be a savage for the meal. Ice skating in an empty arena, Uh, pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic, I would sometimes take a day off of work to go to an open skate. I would go at 10 a.m. on a weekday when there was no one there. I can't play hockey anymore because of an injury, but putting on my old skates and stepping out onto the untouched ice is still incredible. It's like entering another world. I can hear the cut of the blade in the ice and every stride. The creaking of the old worn skate boot as I turn a corner. The weightlessness and power. Some days there is nothing better. Boy, do I agree with that one. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself gray hairs at 24. And she writes, a couple of years ago, I was picking up sushi to eat with my family. I had my hair up, glasses on, and was smiling at a cute animal, uh, animal picture on my phone as I was walking out of the restaurant with the food. As the door closes behind me, a homeless man shouts at me from five feet away, you're so fucking ugly, I hope you kill yourself tonight. Not wanting to provoke him, I quietly said, okay, and quietly walked to my car. Even though, logically, I know I shouldn't pay any mind to something like that, it makes me wonder if that's what people who are sober also think when they see me but are too sane to say aloud. How sad is that? That is the definition of awesome, awful. I hope at least the sushi was good. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey. This was filled out by a guy who calls himself still mad 20 years later. He is uh, straight, in his 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. He writes, uh, molested and used as a vessel of sexual exploration by an older female cousin who lived in our house. I was around 5 or 6 and she was around 11 or 12. I grew up with some real rage issues and undiagnosed anxiety that I didn't recognize until later in life. I felt ashamed and powerless and confused. I've uh, ever been physically or emotionally abused. Uh, I was spanked a lot, As a, uh, and, and he writes, not sure. I was spanked a lot as a kid up until 14 years old. Dad was a good guy, but a very powerful and intimidating person who yelled often. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Not really. Deepest, darkest thoughts. There have been incest fantasies, no doubt caused by all this, some suicidal ideation in the past, lots of impulsive thoughts. I've been at times terrified of being around kids because violent or abusive thoughts will come into my head, not that I want to do those things, but it's more like my brain flashing the worst possible moves into my head. It is very distressing when it happens. And I have had, first of all I want to say how, how sorry I am that that you had to experience that and many people uh also experience that that stress of um you know the the brain playing the unpleasant animation festival of images and you know it's kind of like that thing when you're on the roof of a building and you're like what what if I'm, i jump against my will what if my body just takes over Darkest Secrets. I still can't bear to tell my parents that my cousin also involved my baby sister in sexual acts at least once. Uh, What if anything, and uh, he doesn't list any uh, sexual fantasies. I I guess he kind of did in the Darkest Thoughts section. What if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to ask my parents why they are still in contact with the person who did this to me. Um, Oh, so they must know that it happened to you, just not to your baby sister. What, if anything, do you wish for? Closure. Man, I think a support group would be such a great place for you to begin to to get some closure because there is nothing like being around a group of people that know what you're feeling and who have the experience to help you navigate that. You know, the first time I walked into one of my support group meetings, you know, I'd felt my whole life like a three-legged dog and just always like, you know, nobody is as fucked up as I am. And I walked into this meeting and within a half hour, just hearing various people share, I was like, oh my God, I am in a room filled with three-legged dogs. Have you shared these things with others? Yes. I first told a female friend of mine when I was 13 or 14. She had confided in me that she was violently raped and I could no longer keep silent about what happened to me. I told a couple friends later on and unfortunately one of my friends got drunk at a party and said to me, come on man, have a drink. You already got fucked by your cousin when you were a kid. Wow. Wow. Uh, That took a long time to get over. He's still my friend and a good guy, although very misguided and socially awkward back then, but I'll never forget that. How do you feel after writing these things down? Not sure. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Try to find peace. I haven't, but trying has brought me to a lot of self-improvement over the years. Thank you for filling that out. This is also from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by Faye. She identifies as bisexual. She's in her 30s, was raised in a totally chaotic environment, was a victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, When I was 10 or 11... uh, it was by a male babysitter who was in his twenties and in college. My dad and stepmom hired him often, even though I was only around every other weekend, to watch my four younger brothers because they were little assholes and wouldn't listen to me. I babysat all the time for other people. He wanted to play, quote, house with me, uh, being the mom. No penetration, just dry humping and a lot of fondling. I was a seriously sheltered and extremely developed little girl. I wore a C cup bra at 10. I honest be- honestly believed he wanted to be my boyfriend. I was so ashamed because he gave me my first orgasm. I thought I was a very bad person. I never told anyone. When I was 16 at my first job, an older co-worker and I, I were closing up. He was in the back. I went back to drop off the drawer and cash register printout. Long story short, I ended up being physically forced to give him a hand job. The next day, he wasn't scheduled to work, but came in anyway with a group of five other men. I'm five too. The only other person was a boy, also 16, and busy helping a customer in the front while I was working in the back. They surrounded me and taunted me. I was a sexy little slut. I was going to suck them all off and let them all fuck me, etc., etc. I ran when the other guy from the front came back after the customer left. I was fired for walking out of work after I told my boss the story. Wow. Wow. I can't imagine how difficult it must be for you to walk through the world and and trust people and to and to feel safe she's also been emotionally abused lifetime of abuse stepdad mostly made me and my brother fall in love with him then crushed us he started calling me a stupid little cunt at eight and kicked me out at 16 when my mom got prego with his kid i wasn't welcome in his family that's just a snapshot any positive experiences with the abusers? Absolutely. When his kids would visit, he was so much fun. Campfires and ice skating on the pond in our backyard. He made toboggan runs down the hill. Helped us build tree forts in the woods. Until they left. Then he started drinking. Dot, dot, dot. It had to be a real real mindfuck, too, the fact that he wasn't that way when they weren't around. I mean, how deeply must that have sent the message that you weren't, worthy of love or attention darkest thoughts i want to run away from my family husband of 17 years and kids 18 16 and 5 i want to run away with them if they would come but i doubt they would well that one's interesting because normally when people want to run away they want to run away from the spouse and the kids Uh, Darkest Secrets. I used to experiment with my female cousin who was younger than me. I hope I didn't abuse her. her. She is two years younger. She said we were being gay and never wanted to play again. I never asked or pressed after that. I also experimented with friends, two girls in particular. Again, the minute they felt weird, we stopped. I was in love with Emily in middle school. Broke my heart when she didn't want to let me touch her anymore. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being with a woman, as in a real relationship out in the real world, it makes me want to cry because I'm not strong enough to try. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I hate my stepdad. Hate him. That's in caps. Even now, with my wonderful sister starting her own family, I have to smile and pretend that asshole didn't ruin my life. I have to suck it up for her that's her dad and I love her so much. What if anything do you wish for? I wish my kids didn't need me so much. The two oldest uh, are autistic so that I could leave my comfortable and stable marriage and those are both in quotes. It's just so damn dot 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 easy. Have you shared these things with others? I shared how I feel about the stepdad with my mom she's so codependent I'm her therapist I hate it and I can't say no when she wants to talk about it I guess I'm codependent too that is definitely a sign of, of codependence and that might be a great place for you to to check out a support group because a lot of stuff can get unraveled um, in codependence support groups because They really focus on setting boundaries and sticking to them, identifying what it is that you want, and giving you tools to to go about caring for yourself and practicing self-care and starting to live the life that that you want to live. How do you feel after writing these things down? Like I'm a giant piece of crazy. Like I'm whining. You are not whining. Like I should just stop because so many people have it worse than me. No, it's not a contest. Uh suck it up, buttercup. You know, that's the people that say suck it up, you know, man up. I just want to say fuck you first of all. And you know, those are the usually the people that call, you know, call people snowflake or say that you're afraid to which I would say actually you're the ones that are afraid. You're afraid to open the door to what it is you're feeling, to to share what's going on in your head. You're the one that's running. This person wants to stop and face what they've been running from. That's bravery. What, if anything, would you like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I wish I had advice. I'm not the person anyone should listen to. Thank you for sharing that, Faye. Yeah, I really I really hope you can find some some way to carve out the life that that you want. Because we all you know, we all do it sounds cliche, but we all deserve to find our authentic selves. And finally these are some loves from Windowsill Veronica, and she writes, I love standing by the sea or ocean and staring at the waves in any weather. It's like the sea wind blows all trouble from my mind and quiets it. Yeah, that is a great one. I've always been fascinated by the ocean and waves. It is just so mesmerizing to me. You know, I've seen the Grand Canyon and a lot of other cool shit in my life, but nothing compares to being on the beach at the Banzai Pipeline on Oahu in the winter when the surf was 18 feet and watching people You know, 40 yards away, just (laughs) drop into bombs. You know, there was one guy, before I even got to the beach, I asked somebody, hey, where's Banzai Pipeline exactly? And this guy laughed and said, right by that dude waiting for the ambulance. And there was this guy standing there that had gotten raked over the coral. Because there's only about two feet of water um, between the surface and the rock-hard, razor-sharp bed of coral. So if you wipe out, not only are you getting crushed by those gigantic waves, but you're getting raked over razor blades, and this guy was just bleeding from head to toe. Anyway, I love that. Uh, Adorable big, wet snouts of huge dogs. Watching hot air balloons pass over the old town of my former home city on a beautiful summer evening. Oh, I love this one. Large snowflakes falling quietly in the night, blanketing the world with whiteness. That first cafe stop on holidays when you sit down, order a drink, and know you have an amazing week ahead of you. An afternoon on my own in a bar with a beer and a good book. Not hating the sight of yourself in a group selfie. Well, look at you all full of yourself. Not hating yourself like the rest of us. Medieval cities and old towns, where every step feels surrounded by history, and you can feel generations that have gone before you. Laughing fits with a friend, where you both cannot breathe or talk. Freshly baked bread. I love that one. Uh, I started baking bread, which I've had to take a break from because I had to cut white flour out of my out of my diet, and um, I love just pulling them out of the oven and then set them on a cooling rack, and they for like a half hour you can hear them crackle. Oh, so good. Paddling around a quiet lake in a small, old-school wooden boat, listening to the evening birds settling down and seeing the sky turn purple. Christmas around a large table full of people. Chancing upon a perfect present for someone. Taking the time to perfectly gift wrap, gift wrap something so that the wrapping is so beautiful it becomes an additional present. That was the last one. And that's a great one, and I can honestly say I have never wrapped a gift well. And there's always there's always this anxiety that that the person is gonna to go, go to open it and go, what the fuck? Do you even care about me? And <laughs> just throw the gift at me. Anyway, I hope I hope you got something out of today's episode and I hope if you're struggling that you you know you're not alone and help is always out there if we're willing to get out of our comfort zone and uh, and ask for it and uh, yeah, you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful fucked, 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 fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some
1: weird way.